It is good to be back with you all. Uh, as Sam has said, uh, we are going to be starting in the book of Acts. And uh, Kobe and I got together this week and started to outline the book of Acts kind of through the end of the year. And we were talking about uh, how that's actually a, a harder part of the pastor's job, maybe than most people realize, because you know, with any literary work, there's what the author obviously intends as kind of a textual unit. You know, maybe it's a paragraph, maybe it's two paragraphs, maybe it's an entire chapter. Uh, but a person can only preach so much in one week, and sometimes those two things don't really line up. So how do you handle that if, you know, I have, uh, I have an, an hour more or less to talk through what the author is talking about? And... Uh, and then it occurred to me after our conversation, uh, and I guess several people have mentioned, that in my absence, you all have uh, garnered the expectation that a sermon should be 25 minutes or less. And uh, now, uh, I told first hour, I don't know if they kn knew that I was joking, so it's a joke. <laughs> But if you think that a sermon should be 25 minutes or less, Redemption Hill is this way. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll get back into a book this week. I think uh, topical series absolutely have a role in the life of the church. And uh, as I've been catching up on uh, sermons in my absence, I've been very... Uh, very thankful that Dean and Sam kind of led you through uh, what Scripture calls the community of the church to look like. Uh, and as we go uh, kind of back to just walking through Acts verse by verse, I think we'll find that the book of Acts uh, likewise has a lot that is uh, very relevant uh, for the season of life in our church uh, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, it's part of a kind of a two-volume work. Uh, Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts to be a, a volume one, volume two of the same work. They're addressed to the same person, Theophilus. Uh, and where uh, Luke tells the story of Jesus' life and earthly ministry and ends with Jesus's ascension into heaven, Acts picks up with Jesus's ascension into heaven, and then it tells the story of what Jesus's disciples do after Jesus ascends into heaven. And so we'll be stepping into uh, Acts chapter 1 this morning, but we will kind of refer back to Luke once in a while because Luke... Uh, gives us some context to what uh, Luke is saying in the book of Acts. So uh, Luke starts in verse 1 of Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive my power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that uh, we are here together this morning by your grace. God, we uh, thank you, God, for the abundant evidence of your grace, God, in our life together as a church and even in our coming here this morning in the rain, we are reminded that you refresh and renew all things. And God, we pray that as we see uh, the story of Acts begin to unfold this morning, that you would likewise refresh our spirits, God, that we would uh, walk humbly in obedience to your call upon the church, and that it would be our all-consuming task, and that we would be people uh, compelled by your command, empowered by your spirit to accomplish this work for you. your glory's sake, and for the building of Christ's church. In his name we pray. Amen. So, as I said, uh, Luke and Acts kind of are a package deal, and uh, a, a large chunk of the New Testament, a little bit over one quarter of the New Testament by volume, is uh, Luke Acts. I told, I told, a high school student this week because we're going through Luke on Wednesday nights. If, by the time we finish Luke Acts, you'll be very familiar with a significant part of the New Testament. And Acts is, Acts is important uh, in that it shows and uh, it bridges the gap between the Gospels, what Jesus did, and the epistles, right? Uh, It's telling us about the story of the church unfolding. Uh, It is showing us the fulfillment of some of the commands that Jesus gave uh, in the Gospels. And uh, the book of Acts is kind of structured in a way that uh, it's, it's not telling all of the story of the early church, but it's telling a specific part of the story of the early church. So, for instance, uh, the apostles are going to be mentioned several times up to chapter 13, and then after chapter 13, it's mostly going to focus on Paul. Uh, So, as we uh, see the narrative of Acts unfold, I think we'll also see... uh, something that 
we should probably just discuss on the front end. Uh, Theophilus, we don't know much about him other than what Luke says at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and the beginning of the Gospel, or beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, all, all we really know uh, is his name, Theophilus, which means friend of God. So it, it could be a nickname or a lover of God. So it could be a nickname or it could be his actual name. It was a pretty common name. Uh, when Luke introduces Theophilus in Luke, he calls him most excellent Theophilus, which Luke only ever uses uh, as an honorific for like a governor or somebody in a high social position. So it's possible or even likely that Theophilus is somebody of some like earthly note. Uh, and as he introduces Theophilus, or as he addresses Theophilus in Acts, seems fairly clear that uh, Theophilus uh, knows the gospel, but maybe is kind of flagging in his faith a little bit, or doesn't quite understand everything. And Luke says that his ultimate purpose is to to help Theophilus understand. And, and Luke's style very much appeals to me in Luke and in Acts, because I'm like a give me the facts, hard data person. And Luke is very much that kind of writer. Uh, And apparently he expected Theophilus to be that kind of reader. Luke often grounds things like to a very specific place or a specific person. Uh, It's because of Luke and Luke and Acts that we can build a much more substantiated timeline of Jesus's ministry and the advance of the gospel in the church. But uh, there is a difference between Luke and Acts. Luke is telling us about uh, a sinless man that died on behalf of sinful men. Acts is largely very sinful men telling us about the sinless man. Right, that the the transition is the handoff from Jesus's ministry largely to the apostles or to the disciples, uh, to the disciples picking up and carrying on Jesus's ministry after his ascension. When uh, Luke opens the book of Acts, he, he summarizes basically everything he said. And this is a very common way to introduce a uh, a two-volume work in the first century to give a statement that summarizes uh, the previous volume. And Luke's summary of the book of Luke is, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, which uh, at first seems like a summary that does not nearly do justice to the book of Luke. Uh, And at the same time, how on earth could you summarize the book of Luke other than to say, well, that's what Jesus did and taught because that's what it is. And at the same time, when Luke introduces uh, what Jesus did and taught, he, you know, he doesn't talk about it in the past tense. He talks about what Jesus began to do and teach, which I think uh, the more I thought about it really fascinated me, right? Because I think it's easy for us uh, to think about uh, the ascension of Jesus is kind of being the time when Jesus tags out and the Holy Spirit tags in, right? That's, that's the way a lot of Christians think about it. But it's very clear, and you know, the more think through the book of Acts, uh, it's, it's clear, I think, that uh, Luke very much understood the disciples uh, not to be uh, 
taking over ministry from Jesus, but they, he understood the disciples to be carrying on Jesus's ministry, or Jesus ceased to minister to people personally uh, as he ascends, and his ministry to people comes by the power of the Holy Spirit through his followers. So the apostles are people uh, whose ministry is a continue, very much a continuation of Jesus's ministry. And he continues uh, that to say essentially what he said in Luke chapter 24, right? Luke 24 goes through some of the events after Jesus's resurrection and then some of his teaching to the apostles and then his ascension. And uh, Luke, or excuse me, Acts chapter 1 picks up where Luke leaves off and that Jesus did and taught these things personally until he was taken up. Uh, But first he gave some very important commands through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I think it would would help if we, if the church, uh, understood the the singular nature of these commands. In one sense, like all of the commands of the Lord are important. Uh, but I think Luke splits the narrative here uh, because in one sense, the ascension of Jesus is a natural place to split the narrative into a second volume. But also because uh, I think his redundancy at this point is a way to help his readers focus on what is so important about these commands. Or in other words, that many of the commands of Jesus and even many of the commands that we see uh, through the apostles to the New Testament Christians in the epistles are the natural outworking of this central command of Jesus. This is the purpose of the church, this command that he gives them by the Holy Spirit. And he gives this command to a very particular group of people, the apostles whom he had chosen, that Christ was deliberately, from the beginning of his ministry, working towards this point. That there is a sense in which Jesus was marching towards Jerusalem. He was going towards Golgotha, that ultimately that was the end of his ministry. And then there's a very real sense in which uh, what Jesus accomplishes on the cross does nothing if the church doesn't tell people what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That the message of Jesus has to be proclaimed, it has to be heard, and it has to be received in order for it to have effect. And that Jesus, as he was marching towards Jerusalem, chose, trained up, prepared, and equipped a very specific group of people to carry his message forward. And, excuse me, I, I think that we need to appreciate uh, you know, it's, it's easy to read through the Gospels and think, like, those disciples, they're so silly. Like, they say silly things, they do silly things. Like, 
why did Jesus choose this this group of people? Uh, and like, if you've ever read the Gospels and and wondered that, I think in part Acts very much answers that question because these guys, in one way, did not change at all between Luke and Acts. They're still the exact same people, right? And in some other way, they change dramatically. And as Jesus promises the command, or the promises the Holy Spirit as the gift of the Father, uh, he is pointing out the thing that changed. These are the same ill-prepared kind of crazy guys that weren't getting what Jesus was saying all through the gospel. And they become the force that propels the church forward by the equipping power of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, right? And in one way, and probably in your Bible, this, this is called the Acts of the Apostles or something like that. Uh, and it is very much the Acts of the Apostles, but we were already introduced to these guys some time ago, and they seemed like the B team, right? They did not seem like they were prepared to carry on Jesus's work. And in Acts, they absolutely do, because God specializes in taking people who are not prepared for the work that is set before them and then demonstrating his power through their weakness. And that is absolutely what we'll see in the book of Acts. But before he gets to his elaboration on Jesus' command, he reminds Theophilus that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Right? Then uh, Luke went into much more detail at that point in Luke chapter 24, where he relates three separate incidents of Jesus appearing after his resurrection and interacting with uh, his followers. And uh, for Luke, I think we can safely say, based on chapter 24 of Luke, that the convincing proofs are that in most of those accounts, Jesus asks somebody to touch him or he eats with people, that there are genuine incidents where Jesus does something that only a physical person can do. That Luke absolutely wants this to be clear, that uh, and I should add whether or not Theophilus uh, struggles with it himself, that, that there is probably at this point some Trinitarian confusion, right? That uh, the Holy Spirit is about to come, and where people had only uh, really witnessed the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit through the person of Jesus. He's the only one to this point that had been indwelt by the power of the Spirit. So they experienced the Spirit through the presence of Jesus. This shift that begins at Pentecost is now everyone's going to experience Jesus through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Like they're, they're switching roles in some sense. And uh, Luke, I think, wants it to be clear as all this is happening that Jesus himself is absolutely physically resurrected. 
beyond a shadow of a doubt, right? That uh, Jesus is not uh, some uh, apparition. He's not a force ghost. He's not anything other than a physically resurrected human that has absolutely conquered death. And if you have any question about that, as he laid out in Luke 24, talk to these guys. They touched him. They ate meals with him. This isn't uh, a a fairy tale. It's not some uh, mistake of history. These are clearly verifiable events that actually happened, that the physically resurrected Jesus is the basis for the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus has not been resurrected, then what are we doing? That Jesus is the man who conquered sin and death. He proved that he conquered death. And then Luke adds, he's, he's the only, or this is the only place we have an idea of a timeline where there's uh, 10 separate incidents of the physically resurrected Jesus somewhere in the Gospels interacting with someone. Luke adds that Jesus was making these appearances to people for 40 days. And during those 40 days, his speech was focused on the kingdom of God. And then he he zooms in a little bit back to the command. And he says, uh, while they were staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. And the the phrasing here is uh, something like, like he told them to stop coming and going. Like apparently they were not leaving Jerusalem, but coming and going from Jerusalem. And Jesus says, stop it. Stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. And then he reminds them, you've already heard about this from me. Uh, and he's uh, referring, I think, to, to both his testimony and John the Baptist's testimony. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist said, I baptize with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Or in Luke 24, Jesus said that you will be clothed on, with power from on high. Jesus is narrowing their focus to this event. Stay in Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And uh, for now, uh, this is their immediate objective, but he's going to continue to explain why they need to wait for the Holy Spirit. Why is this one thing so important? And again, I don't, I don't know if you've ever read a gospel, and I don't know if you read the gospels and you hear about that, you know, like all the times the disciples ask something of Jesus, and you know, like they don't really get it. Like they never really seem to understand what Jesus is saying. They argue with each other about silly things. Like they, they just don't understand. And if in transitioning to the book of Acts, you're like, oh, I kind of miss that. It makes me feel better about myself when I see other people say stupid things. Uh, this is maybe the last time we get one of those very clearly. Right? They say, uh, Lord, will you at this time restore 
the kingdom to Israel. And if you remember when Dean was walking us through the book of Mark, uh, remember this, this theme comes up once in a while where they seem to think uh, that this next age is going to play out a lot differently than the next age actually plays out, the church age. They are still apparently somehow expecting with Jesus' resurrection that uh, the glory days of David and Solomon are going to return. And that would be a, a very common idea. And, and Jesus had to in part addressed this already several times, but still they're asking the question. Like, okay, so yeah, 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 we got like that other stuff had to happen, but now is the time, right? Like now is when this is all going to unfold. And Jesus' response to them is, uh, is going to kind of, uh, address timing, but not really. I mean, basically, he just says, don't worry about it. Uh, but in other places, uh, he does kind of fill in more detail than he does here. And uh, I, if you know me, you know, uh, like, my, my first reaction when I read something is, Oh, come on, guys. And then the more I think about it, I'm like, I actually, I kind of do that, too. And uh, the more I thought about this we, this week, I'm like, okay, like, we like to give these guys a hard time, but we kind of do that, too, right? Like, uh, we're talking about the transition to a different age, but we can tend to really focus on details that ultimately will not matter to us anyway. Like, they'll, they'll play out as they play out, right? And I want to be clear that everything that Scripture says is profitable, and to the degree that Scripture addresses how the end before us will play out, it certainly ought to be studied, uh, even studied and understood. But at the same time, I think we, uh, evangelicals, are prone sometimes to read the Bible with the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in another, and we're always trying to mesh the two together. Like, uh, is this country that country, and how is this playing out, and what's the timeline going to be? We have to be very, very close to the end, right, because this is happening and that is happening, and we can kind of get a little bit obsessive about, like, what's going to unfold in the next six months, and I think Jesus' answer to them uh, would probably be Jesus' answer to us at times, where uh, we can uh, we can focus on the next stage and what will be and what won't be to such a degree that it's to our detriment. Jesus, however, if you if you now your mind's on the next stage. Jesus, I think, does at one point give a little bit more detail, and uh, I think it would be helpful because what is, I think, interesting to me is even though there's more detail, there's a, a clear structural similarity between Jesus' answer in Mark chapter 13 and Jesus' answer here. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus uh, 
is at the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. He's just been talking about the temple and how things are going to play out with the temple. And Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And these are the beginning of the birth pains. And so he doesn't give us uh, anything really on a timeline, just things that we can expect to see before the end comes. But then he says, verse 9, Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. That is a summary of the book of Acts, if I've ever heard one. And then verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And so until the gospel is proclaimed to all nations, Jesus is saying, the end will not come. And then go back to Acts. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The Father has fixed these things. They're not outside of his control. They are well in his hand. And do not worry about it because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is to say, you are going to share the gospel with people who are next door to you. You are going to share the gospel with people who are near to you. You are going to share the gospel with people who are near to you, but very much unlike you. You are going to share the gospel absolutely everywhere with everyone. And, or, you could say, Jesus' uh, implied response seems to be, you need to be thinking a lot less about what's going to happen in the weeks and months to come and a lot more about the job I've called you to do right now today. And that is why I would suggest to you that well, we can succumb to this danger. It is easy for us to think about what will happen in the weeks or months or year to come when there is a task given to us by the Lord that it, it must be done now, today, that souls are perishing apart from Christ today. And when Jesus focuses their attention on this task, I think he is as gently as possible reminding them that they have a job to do. It is the charge of Jesus Christ that the church carry the gospel out. 
And the book of Acts is largely going to be the apostles fulfilling this charge. Right up until Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8, it's, it's pretty much in Jerusalem. Uh, from 8 until 13, it's going out in Judea and Samaria. And then from chapter 13 forward, it's going to Rome, essentially. And then from Rome, it goes everywhere. And you know, while Acts leaves some uh, questions about the progress of the gospel in the early church unanswered because it can't address all of the places that the gospel is advancing, it certainly does answer a lot of questions about the nature of gospel advance. And that is why I want to focus on this at this point in the life of our church. I think absolutely this is not just Jesus's call to the apostles. This is Jesus's call to the church until he comes. And after Jesus said all this, they were looking on and he was lifted up and the cloud took him out of their sight. And this is uh, you know, one of the points in the narrative of Acts that I have to stop and be like, what on earth would it be like to be a disciple at that point? Like, you'd spent the last three years kind of confused by Jesus, everything that had just, like, you saw him crucified, then he appeared to you resurrected, and he was there long enough for you to become convinced. Yeah, he actually rose from the dead. Like, what can we not do with this guy? Like, he can do anything. He, he is God. Like, I mean, I'll follow Jesus anywhere. I'll do anything with Jesus. Jesus is beyond anything I could possibly imagine. And then he just kind of like ascends to heaven. And like, uh-oh. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I'm quite as bold now that Jesus is gone. Like, were they standing there, like, in awe of the fact that Jesus just ascended into heaven? Were they a little bit terrified that he gave them a, a difficult job and then left? Right? Like, what are these guys feeling in the moment? We, we don't really know. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us. All we know is that they were gawking at the sky. Uh, they're just standing there looking up like, uh, what's next? And much like the tomb, two guys show up. Uh, as Mary's standing in front of the tomb and two angels come, uh, here, two angels come standing in white robes, and they say to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Which is probably the most gentle way they could rebuke them. Uh, like, you have been given a very clear command, and you are not doing it. Like, and you think about the time that elapsed, like how much time would have elapsed, and it doesn't really matter. The angel's witness to the disciples is... You have been given a job to do. And furthermore, 
Don't worry about Jesus ascending into heaven. Jesus is going to return in exactly the same way you saw him go into heaven. And I would add, and he's going to do that when you finish the job that he gave you to do in the first place. And in one sense, I can definitely appreciate uh, the disciples potentially feeling like, well, like without Jesus, how does this happen? Like, what are we going to do? What happens next? But I think it's important uh, for us to understand that with Jesus's ascension into heaven, Jesus's ministry does not cease. In one sense, we can say that Jesus's earthly ministry is fulfilled. He sits down at the right hand of the Father. He says, it is finished. That With the cross and with the resurrection, Jesus finally accomplishes the defeat of sin and death. And at the same time that we can say that some aspect of Jesus' ministry is entirely finished, he isn't just sitting on his hands waiting for the church to get the job done. That at the right hand of the Father, by the power of his blood, he is interceding on behalf of the saints. That Jesus' promise of and ultimately sending the Holy Spirit is so that he can go to heaven and continue to minister on behalf of the saints with the Father, and he sends the Spirit in his stead. That the Holy Spirit is the empowering uh, presence of God in the church here and now for the commission of Christ. And I think it's whether or not uh, we would say that we're a person that maybe is kind of guilty thinking about the end of days a little too much. Like we're we're all people who naturally let our minds wander to the future. Like that's a pretty natural human impulse. Right? I, I suspect that's very much what's happening amongst the disciples as they're standing, gazing into heaven, like they're, uh, now what? Right? And we, I think, all tend to do that at times. I probably tend to do it as much or more than anybody. But I think. Well, let me add, I, I think it is, that is an incredibly natural impulse uh, when the church is in a time of transition, right? Like, whether, whether you're going to Redemption Hill or you're staying at Country Bible, very shortly things are about to change quite a bit, right? Like, uh, You've heard us for years saying, hey, we need a few more people to help with Awana this year. We need a few more people to help with nursery. And like if 40 or so people go to Hickman, like a lot of the things we've done as a church are going to be difficult, if not impossible. Uh, when it was difficult with 40 more people than we will have. And um, if you're going to Redemption Hill, I don't know what you're thinking. Maybe you're thinking, well, 
you know, if we staff a nursery, then who's going to be in the church service or something? I, like, uh, right? Like, this is going to be uncomfortable transition for everybody, and I would expect that you, like I, uh, are thinking, like, what do the weeks ahead look like? What do the months ahead look like? Uh, maybe once in a while you think, why are we doing this again? Uh, How uncomfortable is this going to be? And I think whether you're, you're going or you're staying, it could be really, really easy right now to think a lot about what thing is next and not about the commission that Jesus Christ has given us to fulfill today, now. That we have to be people who seize absolutely every opportunity for gospel advancement, not just now and today, but that as a church, we are doing the same. And that with all of the discomfort and unease in front of us, like we are not doing this on a whim. We are doing this as a church because we've decided that advancing the gospel in our Judea is the most faithful expression of our stewardship in Christ, that that is the command that Christ gave us, and that is absolutely what we should busy ourselves doing. That that I want to say in love that uh, every time we're thinking about what happens next, we should probably ask ourselves, what does greater faithfulness look like today? Not next week, not in three weeks, not in six months, but today. And furthermore, I'd like to say that uh, everything that we're going to face as a church in the months to come could be an absolutely wasted opportunity if we do not use... uh, whatever discomfort comes as a constant reminder that we are not gathering as a church for our comfort or for our ease, that our gathering as a church is for the very specific command of Christ to see the gospel advance among people who are like us, among people who are near us, among people who are far from us, and absolutely among people who are unlike us, that we are to be pursuing the advance of the gospel in absolutely every opportunity that the Lord gives us. And whenever we can make an opportunity, we're going to do that. That our DNA as a church has to be the command of Christ to see the gospel advance. And if you're thinking, with all this uncomfort coming, we are unequal to the task. Like, congratulations, you're right. We are absolutely unequal to the task in front of us. There is no way, apart from the grace of God, that we can do what we've set out to do. But like the apostles in Acts, who were likewise unequal to the task that the Lord gave them, the Lord equips his people for their work. 
He has given us the Spirit. And just as we're going to see His power play out in their weakness for the advance of the gospel, if we walk in faith, we will absolutely see the power of His Spirit play out in our weakness for the advance of the gospel. I'm sure of it. And so, as we go through Acts, I think uh, it's important to remember, and Luke will often remind us, that this is absolutely uh, fact, historical fact. This is how the grace of God worked out through the ministry of the disciples for the building of Christ's church. And that should be a constant comfort to us. That the same God that was ministering to and through them is the God who is ministering to and through us. And his faithfulness to them is absolutely the sort of faithfulness we can expect from him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the grace of Christ. God, we thank you for the present ministry of Christ, that he is interceding on our behalf, that that you've embraced us as sons and daughters by his blood. God, that you have not left us, but you have empowered us by your spirit to accomplish the work that you've given us. And Lord, uh, even as we see the enemy seeming to beset us on all sides, God, we are absolutely confident that the only danger we're in is disobedience to your command. And so, Lord, we pray that you would humble our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would make us faithful. God, as we surrender ourselves to you, God, we pray that you would use us for the salvation of all people. God, that as we plant and water, you would cause growth. God, we pray that you would draw still more people to yourself. God, that the bride of Christ would continue to be perfected, Lord, that you would return. And we pray all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. We read in Second Peter chapter 3. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity amen go in peace you're dismissed